Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is part two of my conversation with Marcus Turner, former head of business affairs of Roadrunner Records. On the European side, if you're unfamiliar with Marcus, check out part one. And coupled with this conversation, you'll have the whole breadth of the story of Roadrunner Records from, say, 1990 from Marcus's point of view, which uh, exposes many, many details of the Roadrunner story, which would not be accessible through conventional methods. Anyway, thanks again to Marcus for sitting down and having these conversations with me. They're always awesome, they're always articulate, they're always incredibly entertaining for me, coming from the, the background I've come from. So enjoy it. One, two, fuck it up. So, I listened back to our conversation the other week, and we focused quite a bit on the universal acquisition, and, and kind of that's probably where this conversation is going to go, going to bring us to the end of that story arc. Um, but... As since we since we had that conversation, I kind of like meditated on it a little bit more. And to me, the first domino falls with an album from 1992, which is Biohazard's Urban Discipline. Now, the story around that is they were a Warner band, but Warner one, and I don't know that this could be a little bit dicey in terms of detail, so forgive me. The guys at Warner wanted some kind of low-level credibility, some underground credibility for this act before they put it on, on Warner. So what they did was they basically said to uh, Roadrunner, hey, we've got this um, band called Biohazard, very New York-centric, got like hardcore sensibilities and things like that, really innovative stuff. We want you to put out their first record and then we'll take it and it's ours. You have a one, like, like a license deal, but not quite a license deal because Roadrunner's name is all over it. And then it goes out, it's great, fantastic. But in that transaction, and there's a guy called Leo Cohen, who is part of Warner at that time. And for me, the first domino falls when he sees the operation that Roadrunner is. And that's when he starts his affair with it. And that carries us all the way through. That's the first seed. That's the first domino that falls when he sort of sees the, the, what Case is doing. Does that have any merit? Does that make sense? Was was Lear uh, at Warner at the time, or was he involved in management uh, in, in some capacity? Because that, I mean, this is before my time. I I, don't, I know about the Biohazard deal. Uh, it was kind of like an incubator deal where Roadrunner indeed put out the first album, and um, Sony uh, Warner would would. Uh, I thought it was Sony actually. You're, you're right, it was Warner. Warner would then continue the the success of the independent label, having launched this record. And uh, take it to um, yeah the incubator next deal. That's a great way of saying it. Yeah, um, and well, Roadrunner uh, was was uh, paid a royalty for the subsequent albums, um, so it wasn't um, a sort of meritless uh, activity, right? Uh, but I'm I'm not sure what what uh, Lear's role was in that uh, in that capacity at the time. I, I just don't know. Mm. Um, I could ask I could ask Case. That's why, I'm, uh, you know, have you heard whether he was uh, with Warner already or was it in a... I, I know he's in, uh, he's in the the blast zone of that deal. He's, right. he's I, f I feel like, I can't remember where I got this from. I can't remember where I got it from. I know he was there. Maybe it's a management capacity. Maybe it is in Warner. Maybe he was just outside looking in at the windows or something. But in my head, for some reason, that's where Lior starts his relationship with Case. And that's where this first meeting happens, or this first sort of handshake, which carries us through. Because when we, when we look at the press around the Universal deal, a lot of the time, 
you see either case or someone in this sort of transaction saying, oh, we've wanted this to work for about 10 years, but it wasn't workable. We wanted some kind of arrangement whereby Roadrunner could be bought out by another company or they'd have an investment in Roadrunner for 10 years, but it never worked out. So I feel like there's some kind of through line in there somewhere relating to Biohazard, Leo, and kicking off this entire process, which leads us to 2012. Um, but if you if you if we don't know, we still don't know, and that's fine. That's well, we can, we, we can we could try and reconstruct that. But I mean, the the name Leo for me didn't didn't become sort of um, um, ubiquitous until that universal deal. Then the name Leo was was being was was being uh, thrown about all the time, and mm. so the the thread from Biohazard to the universal uh, acquisition or part acquisition. Mm. Is is thin for me, uh, and I, I didn't know I didn't know about that. But you know, you your, your reference to the the deal having uh, you know not being a, not being of maturity to that point, um, I, I I can I can place that as well. Although I don't know, I just don't have enough data, uh, information about the the role or the relationship at the time. Yeah, certainly it becomes becomes solidified in in uh, in two thousand two thousand one. Yeah, totally. Uh, but the in-between bit, I don't remember Case uh, mentioning clear mm. that, you know, at all for that matter. But no, yeah, that, that was all US business. And I was on uh, on the other side of the of the pond. So yeah. Um, mm. yeah, I just don't have enough. Uh, <laughs> no, it's cool. I'm marking this enough. as a observation slash theory in sort of the canon of this sort of research vehicle that is a podcast. That's where I'm looking at the minute. Because it, it yeah. for plot point, I know we, I just described this as a, almost in filming terms, and I don't mean to, but it, it kind of like it resonates really in terms of the story of Roadrunner. As a plot point, I feel like the genesis is over there somewhere. I feel like it. I could be full of shit, and I'm sure someone will tell me that the first time when when Case met Leo will will be will be something different. But you know, that's where I'm that's where I'm looking right now. But as okay. you say. So go on. Even earlier than than uh, the biohazard deal, you, you said it's like ninety two. I think um, even before that, ninety one. This might be even a question for for Michel. There was uh, one of the majors had an option to to buy um, Roadrunner, and they paid um, a, you know a sizable amount of money to to acquire the option to buy the label, which they didn't exercise. So there were some earlier flirtations with with um, you know major label potential acquisitions than uh, the year 2000, which is not such a strange thing because the whole independent um, scene, certainly the larger independence, was, was interwoven with, uh, with uh, the majors. Mm. You, know, you have major label distribution or you might have an independent releasing the album in Europe and a major would release it in the, uh, the States or, or vice versa. So um, it's certainly not strange happening for, for, for Roadrunner to have been um, courting or courted by uh, the majors, even as early as uh, the the early nineties. Wow! And the biohazard might cer certainly have been an example of that. Yeah, a kind of a, more of a tangible manifestation of that appetite, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. You needed. I mean, the majors and the independents needed each other. Majors um, wanted to uh, distribute to independent uh, labels because. That was a, a scene uh, and, a, and a genre, as it were, that they weren't uh, necessarily well represented in. And um, to to be dis distributing an independent label would give them real sort of uh, first-hand knowledge of 
how that label worked, uh, how the genre was working in a market. It would just give them the, the data that they would need to analyze whether an acquisition was later uh, justified. Yeah. And furthermore, if, in terms of the acts that would come through that system, the indies are the bottle in which the lightning is captured. So I guess they yeah. want proximity to that um, to allow further advantages um, and opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about Leo anyway, um, anyway, because he comes up a lot, especially as we approach the, the 21st century. But I feel like he's, I'm, I'm characterizing him as like the vulture that flies over everything and then comes and picks it at the carcass when it's not really that. Um, Cathy Reed Merritt, Merritt said it the best way, which was, one who just walking through the garden, and they picked the, the best flower when they acquired Roadrunner. And obviously, when we have a character like Leo, who is unrepresented in this in this story, because all I do is talk about this guy that, that spearheaded the acquisition. Um, I think a, a lot of details being left out. So I wanted to open the floor and just talk about this guy as a guy. So I can understand him a little bit more if you if you're in a position to do so. Well, yeah, I mean, I can certainly give my thoughts on on, on Lear. Look, uh, case case and Lear. If you if you put the two men uh, beside each other, they are they're chalk and cheese. But uh, I remember Case talking about Lear as being his kindred spirit, his his, his soulmate, and 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 vice versa. Certainly, in a in a in an entrepreneurial sense, in the music industry, they're both entrepreneurs uh, ahead of their time in in genres that didn't necessarily uh, suit them. Um, you could you could argue certainly in terms of case and and, and heavy metal and extreme metal, mm. um, and and yet these men came together and there was this real there was a spark um, and, a, and an amazing chemistry, and that relationship um, was so good and so uh, positive and fruitful that it also dictated how the relationship of the Roadrunner as a whole was to Universal as a whole, and I think that's something you wanted to. Uh, yeah, sort of uh, zone in on as well. It was it was a fantastic working relationship. They they let us uh, continue to run the company as as um, we'd done before, mm. in spite of owning um, uh, half of it at uh, at the time. So usually, if you come in and you own half a company, you want you want to have control. But no, they didn't. Universal left the control, um, or Island Def Jam in this case, uh, left the control to to Case, and that was very much I I believe Lear having full and utter trust in case to run the company um, in his way. And, to, and, and that would be uh, with his people. And that would be the, um, yeah, the wherewithal to, to continue to be successful. Mm. Yeah. If it, ain't, if it don't, ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, it's especially at that time when the trajectory was like, I'll call it Paolo. It was like, this is the tipping point. All we've got to do is not fuck it up. Yeah, and it was um, true. And, and uh, I recall that Lear was his larger than life, or is a larger than life uh, 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 character and persona. Um, and, you know, if, if you were, I met him once at a, at a, um, at a get together in, in, uh, in uh, New York, the whole company was there. And uh, the acquisition had um, recently been done. So Alan Defsham is now 50% owner of the, com- owner of the company. Um, the Roadrunner folks are sat there in this really crummy hotel um, somewhere in the Poconos and enter Lear and his um, uh, uh, entourage by helicopter. I mean, how amazing is that? <laughs> Talk about larger than life. This helicopter arrives on the lawn outside the hotel where we're all Waiting um, for 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 an audience with the Lear and his uh, and his and his men, um, 
which is just an incredible thing for these like metalheads. Uh, here, here arrives the, the the super executive in his in his helicopter. Wow, that's insane. That's insane, especially when you've been slumming it in the underground for so long. And then <laughs> exactly. there's something, something something to represent like the <laughs> the viability of like the Slipknot and Nickelback era. Have the chopper in with the big boys. <laughs> the chopper, and then I mean things were going so well at the time as well. I mean, Case used to be. I mean, it didn't, it didn't happen often, but I uh, recall him getting on a private jet with one of the executives at some point flying back from, from a meeting in Canada. Um, and then Case would go like, oh, I've just, I've just flown back by private jet to, to JFK. Uh, uh, so there was some weird, weird shit happening. I mean, it was just such a massive difference to what we'd been used to. We were the guys that used to come off of playing uh, as, uh, in the words of John Sattley, as if you're as if your ass had been whacked by a sledgehammer for, for 12 hours because we sat at the back of the plane. We never had business class. We, we, I mean, we were grunt class. Um, there, was, there was none of that. And then all of a sudden we're part of the, the major label setup and reading their policies on, on, on business class travel. So we're going, oh, hang on, if you, tra- if you fly for five hours or more, you're eligible for a business class trip. <laughs> um, which I think, uh, but, but even still, I, I think Case probably said, I don't give a shit what those policies say. We're continuing to do things as, as we used to, which kept it real for us and kept mm. it sane. Yeah, yeah. Need a need not want is how I'm running my budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I agree. And we stayed. I mean, we stayed lean. I mean, even though there was more money around and there were success, big successes with with a few of the bands at the time. And uh, I mean, I've, I've alluded to the sort of like the uh, the the seven. It's probably more lean years. Uh, it might have been ten lean years from from about the uh, two thousand one onwards. Yeah, largely to the to, to the, the the acquisition, final acquisition by by Warner's, we were hugely profitable. Um, and in spite of this um, this uh, crazy amount of money being earned in in the company and turnover growing, uh, the investments uh, stayed largely in in the bands, mm. not in 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 marble f- uh, floors or pristine offices. Um, the investment stayed in the bands and um, and getting in the best uh, personnel, best capital, yeah. um, and not squandering it on stupid stuff like business class travel. Um, Let's talk about some of the numbers then, because you refer to the, those years as kind of the glory years. Yeah, and I love I love this disparity. Um, disparity. I, maybe that's the wrong word, but if you ask Monty, Monty will say the nineties were the, the glory years, absolute glory years. And you're on another. You're on another desk in the same company, going nah, 2000, 2007 or roughly that with the glory is. So the universal acquisition, fifty percent. I read through it, thirty three million. Does that sound about right? Fifty percent acquisition. Um, yeah, roughly, roughly. Yeah, round about that. And I think yeah. you mentioned something. Bottom line profit in those seven years about twenty million. Obviously, give and take whether Nickelback or Slipknot had, a, had an album out that year, presumably. But if we're looking at a base level of twenty million, this is pre-recession money, and yeah. this is in a, an era. This is a pre-Silicon Valley um, thirteen billion dollar deal industry. You know, it's, it's it's we're in that sort of nice period where um, you could actually quantify what money means, <laughs> what what amounts actually mean. Uh, certain amounts whereas now when you see something like oh disney acquire fox for a total of something x billion it's like well this now means nothing to me because it's a number that's staggeringly high in real terms a profit of 20 million per year is absolutely substantial for its time and it's actually 
It's crazy. I mean, it's crazy, for, yeah. for a heavy metal label. Um, yeah, contextualizing that for a heavy metal label, that's, that's absolutely insane. Yeah, totally. I mean, a lot of companies would be happy with that kind of stuff to have a have a turnover of 20 million, let alone a profit of 20 million. I think we had a, uh, a group turnover of maybe 100 to 150 million. And and those numbers, you know, that the, the, that profit percentage was was uh, was fantastic. Also, it's not just the amount of profit, but the profit margin mm. was so good. And, and the number crunches were, um, you know, they're, they're happy, happy as Larry because those margins were, were so good. And you get that with the large volumes and the the, the scale um, uh, efficiencies and, and and what have you. But, but I, I tell you, Monty with with the nineties being the glorious because those were the years that the, 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 those guys were building and the acts were getting better yeah. and the, um, the successes were starting to grow. And relatively speaking, if you managed to chart a uh, record in the nineties, it was far a far greater success than doing it uh, in in two thousand and five when we'd had hit after hit after hit with Nickelback and others. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, but I, I remember the '90s as being the lean years. We, I mean, we had a couple of years uh, even before the the arcade uh, take takeover that we've spoken to, uh, spoken about before, where where we we were um, cancelling dinner appointments because we couldn't pick up the tab to pay the um, uh, you know to, to the expect we couldn't afford the expenses, or we'd go out and we'd hope the other party would pick up the tab because money was too tight to mention. Uh, this is kind of like the European situation. Uh, and, and this is where the whole lean and mean uh, ethic of ether or ethos comes from. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I talk about the glory years, I'm talking about those glorious, profitable years when we had no, uh, we had no financial worries. Um, yeah. Versus yeah. the 90s when we, when we did, when we were still building. There is an angle here from my side of the desk, which pertains to why I think they were the glory years as well. And I think it's, it's something to do with the A&R function. It's no longer fighting to be viable. It's taking up. So if we think of it like a, as a baseline, as a, if we can try and quantify culture and say, this is what the zeitgeist is doing. We've got the Black Album. We've got Nirvana. We've got these things. Roadrunner's always sort of like this. We've got thrash bands. We've got metal bands. We're doing the grunge thing. And it, it responds really well to what the market's asking for during this time but as soon as we hit this period the post um, universal acquisition years all of a sudden we're trendsetting that transition to me is really compelling and again i could be full of shit and i think it's all perception and i think it's because i I, that's when i was getting into metal (laughs) i consider those to be trendsetting years not that the years prior weren't but i think it was way more prominent and there was a lot more risk taking in this period post 2000s um I think I need to I need to crunch the numbers on that a little bit more, but that's that's how I feel those glories um, manifesting. Um, but yeah, I probably just opened myself up to a torrent of. Well, no, what do you mean by uh, give me an example of what you see as trendsetting versus uh, what was just not making the grade as a trendsetter? So, for example, Grunge Truck. Yeah, that was a Seattle. That yeah. was a Seattle scene thing. Yeah, um, there was the the the, the rap bit that was happening in the late uh, 2000s that's late 90s as well with hard boys and a couple of others um we'll go into that yeah i'm not sure how far we can down that rabbit hole we can go um where else are we it, it, that late 90s era is kind of difficult to quantify because we have those flagships that are still doing the flagship thing like the fear factories and the machine heads 
doing their thing. But I guess it's in the zeitgeist of metal, it's considered to be kind of a dark time as the 90s. And it's, I think I find it difficult to reconcile exactly what trends were being set in this period. Early 90s, definitely, we've got Chaos AD, which is like the alternative to Big Four Thrash. That's what Sepultura was doing. Fear Factory blending death metal and a more of an industrial vibe. Typo doing typo, which is like counterculture to counterculture. Great, these are trendsetters. You could even say they are, they're outliers because they didn't. Nothing really came after them, which made you think. Yeah, oh, st- like name another band like Typo. You just fucking can't name another band like Sepultura. You can't, especially in that era. It's kind of strange. But when we look to two thousands on- onwards, Trivium Killswitch, this metalcore, this new wave of American heavy metal. This is a totally fresh thing. It was yeah. spearheaded by Roadrunner bands. Yeah. Um, moving further forward into like Gojira, uh, things like that, it, it, it's, it's trendsetting. And even like Ron Berman's contribution with Blackstone Cherry, Airborne, this more contemporary, what we'd now call active rock. Yeah. I'm not seeing that where... The, the thing is though, I'm tunnel vision I'm thinking about Roadrunner. This probably, this, it could have happened elsewhere, but I'm just not seeing it. But the way I'm perceiving it is just like... It feels like there's a lot more risk taking, calculated risks, um, promising kind of like it, it feels like there's a lot more control. Roadrunner knows exactly what it's bringing to the table and it knows what trends it wants to set and it knows where the market's going to go and they're taking advantage of that. Again, spitballing as I go, but that's just the feeling yeah. I get at the minute. No, I think you're you, you're probably right about uh, some of some of that stuff. I mean, there was a period when we were doing a lot of uh, sounds a lot like when we had a band called Shelter that sounded like Green Day, and we had yeah. a um, Junkie Cell sounded like uh, Prodigy. Um, so the, it's not like we were trying to mimic others, but we're certainly riding the wave of the grunt truck example. Um, is 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 a good is a good one as well. Um, where we're trying to ride a wave that's already there to to uh, to be taken, yeah. and it didn't really didn't really work out for us. Um, so maybe that forced us back to our let's go back to the core and and, and doing what we do so well, namely, uh, put you know putting up bands that are different and shaking mm. things up rather it's, than trying to be like others. It's it it's difficult because. There's no hard rules here. There are plenty of exceptions to these rules, but it looks like the transition between the, the 80s, 90s into 2000s is the transition from reactory to proactory. Uh, pro yeah. It, it, that's what it feels like. Um, yeah. Again, theories that I'm going you know, to get shot down for or explore further. Um, but no, that's just my side of the table when we talk about those as the glorious for me. Uh, obviously, as you say, there was an underlying profit and there was a viability there as a business, which we need to understand as as a, an independent heavy metal label, I think hadn't done before. It hadn't happened before on that scale. And I keep saying things like this with nothing to back it up. So I need to look at it more, but yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, I guess I'm just trying to, I guess I'm just trying to throw ideas in the air and see which ones land with the person I'm speaking to. Cause it, you know, rose tinted glasses as I'm looking back on that period. Yeah. 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 Let's tidy a couple of things up. Um, Last time you mentioned there's a case and a case. What's where do we call say case and where do we call case case? It's it's a funny one because he introduces himself in Holland as uh, a says. Um, his name is uh, actually Cornelis, but 
there's a lot of Dutch who have names like Her uh, Cornelis, Herbertus, just Latin sounding names, Catholic sounding names, which become something very different, almost like a nickname. Um, so no one calls Case Cornelis. Uh, but um, so he, he has this, if he's in America, he introduces himself as Case, because Sace is a, maybe an odd sounding name. Mm. I don't know. Uh, but in Holland, it's, it's uh, Sace. But then it's kind of left to the um, introduce uh, uh, to, to the person who he's introducing uh, to as to whether they they he can you continue to call him Sace or Case. He's, he never corrects anyone. I've always called him Case. Um, Wim, the, the the CFO, calls him Case. Um, I, I don't know what his wife calls him. Whether it's I think it's Case, but others. So almost on a sort of arbitrary uh, basis. Some call him cases, some call him says. I think I cases have between. taken over a bit than from says. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't know. Uh, he, he will no doubt correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought says might have come from Caesar. Um, case is a big um, fan of Julius Caesar's and there's <laughs> more about the Roman Empire than, than any Roman that ever lived in the empire. His, his knowledge of history is just unbelievable about pretty much every period over the last 2000 or more years. Um, pick his brain at some point when you speak to him about, about history. His, his knowledge is just it's gargantuan. So I thought um, that's purely my theory. I, I, don't know, I, I don't know whether it's backed by any, uh, by any uh, uh, fact, but I think he's uh, secret, um, or not secret, but his, his admiration for Caesar might have been a reason to uh, switch <laughs> to seize. I don't know. Maybe we should just like, some things we should just leave to legend. Yeah, I quite like that one, Cornelius. Yeah. Though that's, that's I never knew that, but I, it, I can I can speak to the the case versus say it I, so, a soft C a soft like yeah. sound yeah. It, that would be kind of strange. We'd have to yeah. we have to take a few extra steps to make that normal, and I see why, especially in the UK and the US. It's funny because um, I mean um, in Holland you have, the case is spelled in two ways with a C or with a K. Uh, obviously, if it's spelled with a K, there's no making it a soft C. Mm. Um, I, I've not met any other cases in Holland who introduce themselves as says. Uh, that's not to say that they're, they're not around, but that, that makes him, I think, um, unique from uh, from also <laughs> that point of view. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like a, a label he uh, he gave himself. Well, it's good to know there's no there's no one answer, so no one's wrong and no one's right, and that's fine by me. Yeah. Um, more housekeeping from the nineties. Uh, these are just things that I've, I've, yeah, I went through my notes from like the early parts of this project and I was like, oh yeah, shit. I've, I now know a load of people who can answer these fucking questions <laughs> because at the start, it was just Googling until I could find something road racer to road runner. So the U S, um, the U S title of the company, obviously there was when, uh, when, when case went to the U S Warner kicked off and said, someone might confuse your metal label with a flightless bird that we own a character of. Please rename yourself as Roadrunner, uh, Road Racer for a few years, please. How did that get resolved? Because eventually, uh, records start getting released under the Roadrunner name again. Yeah, um, look, that was that was a, a case. Uh, ultimately, took advantage of the fact that uh, Warner Bros. It wasn't the Warner Record Company, but Warner Bros. So the the yes, the yeah, studio, yeah. Um, the studio had not um registered or not adequately registered the roadrunner meat meat trademark in europe 
But they had uh, got really strong registrations and protection of that trademark in the States. So um, Case um, cunningly um, took advantage of this by saying, well, you guys haven't got a registered brand in Europe or it's not registered in every country. You know what? I'm just going to take that space and be Roadrunner in Europe. Um, and by the way, you guys can't operate your brand in Europe because I've already claimed it for records <laughs> and other classes that you might want to at some point have protection for in, in relation to your own brand. Um, so that at some stage brings the, the parties to the table because they, they need something from each other. Case wanted to have the name Roadrunner in the States, obviously. So they get they come to the table and a an agreement a settlement agreement was uh, was uh, negotiated um, that they would coexist. One could be a roadrunner for records, but not records uh, in in the children's market, um, and there could be no uh, reference to meep meep or other uh, uh, you know uh, whatever bits and pieces from that cartoon. And at the same time, Warner Bros had to refrain from using their name and their brand and their meet me in relation to uh, records for the for the uh, for the adult uh, rock market or whatever it was so perfect uh, perfect cohabitation um or coexistence rather of the of the marks uh, worldwide so that's what happened and so that's, crazy that was the, that was the uh, end of road racer there was no longer a need for it yeah yeah that's, that's so but in terms of like because it's always positioned as big bad Warner Bros um, yeah. coming in. And then the the resolution is just left for speculation. But no one's talking about, no, Case just completely doubled down on the rest of the planet. No, it was a, it was a really good one. But the, that whole trademark thing, we've, we've had uh, so much shit with trademarks over the past. I mean, I remember, you know, when you register a trademark, we used to register all our band trade uh, names because we were doing the merchandising as well. Yeah. So an example was Machine Head. Uh, was going out on that and their emblem was going out on t-shirts so i registered this name machine head in europe and within no time i get an, an opposition from the uh, the trademark attorneys for the uh, tennis racket brand head um so it's like guys we do rock heavy rock and t-shirts um uh, of this band and, and you make tennis rackets surely we're not going to be in each other's space so but that so that was happening all the time but the but obviously the roadrunner one was far more significant because it was a worldwide thing and uh, a bigger brand and a bigger uh, a bigger problem, quite frankly. And it got resolved really, really well. Love it. We had a band in the UK called Wormhole at some point, and there was an American band called Wormhole. So in America, we were called Wormhole, something really naff, like Wormhole US or something. You'd have nice. to some, somehow come up, come up with uh, a distinguishing factor. But, and that was what Road Racer was, um, but it was a little bit too distinguishing because you couldn't really identify with the mm. label on a worldwide, uh, um, yeah, on a worldwide basis if it was called two things in different places. Anyway, yeah, it it's good. I, I like that story though. That makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. I mean, it's like kind of the, the, the David and Goliath battle, and uh, um, that's what uh, that's what Case was so um, yeah, so resolute on. He didn't care about. Uh, you know, however small he was versus the the vehemoth of of Warner Bros. Mm. Whatever, you know. Yeah, I'm right. I, uh, I and I'm taking advantage of this situation. Something I forgot to mention last time: um, Blue Grape. Yeah, its role in. Well, first of all, where does the name Blue Grape come from? Whoa, I I just don't know. That's fine. I have, That's fine. I have no idea. 
That's cool. Um, its role in this case's deal, which is now referred to as a 360 deal, um, the idea is, obviously, I know I go on about the deals a lot, but I, I want to focus a little bit on Blue Grape specifically from a merchandising front, because you mentioned that with your machine edit. Um, yeah. Anyway. Rodan has a bit of publishing, a bit of the copyright, a bit of the masters, all this stuff. They have a, fingers in all pies, including merchandising. How significant is the merchandising to the bottom line? I mean, typically when I'm when I'm thinking of a band on tour, that's handled completely externally. Yeah. Were the surely the overheads don't justify the means on that, especially in certain contexts like touring. I know I'm speaking out of turn because I don't really know this world, but I, how critical was it? Was it really important that, that bands were also signed up to the merch company as well? Did that really keep the lights on anywhere? You know, I think it was, uh, maybe maybe we were ahead of the game on the 360 thing. Um, mm. And by the, later when the 360 thing became so important, we'd already divested uh, Blue Grape. Um, we'd, we'd, we'd sold the business um, probably about five years before 360 deals were being being made in earnest um, in in the nineties when when I joined the company um, it was almost like a, a, a dictate you sign a record deal with us you sign your publishing and you and and the office next door is your merchandising go and sign that contract as well mm. um, the deals weren't sort of cross collateralized however it was expected that you were you would sign the merchandising uh, deal as well uh, uh, you know at the same time those bands needed a merchandiser. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a perfect solution for them to be able to go to the, the next office and sign a merchandising deal because they'd be getting T-shirts yeah. um, on tour. So it made perfect sense. It wasn't, um, it, it, you know, it didn't always feel like sort of like a, a constrictor um, negotiation. Yeah, totally. Um, so it, it made perfect sense to the band. It, you know, to be honest, it's a business that uh, record guys um, barely understood. It's that that um, having to get T-shirts made in China and printed in Turkey and. Uh, problems with stocks or uh, stuff going missing you know the uh, cash on on tour you can imagine there's a festival where you're selling i don't know how many thousands of t-shirts and other bits and pieces key rings you name it um at the time there were no pin machines um, um what do they call them direct debit machine. it was mm. all just cash um and at some of these festivals and concerts there was so much cash coming in um, at the at the same time at, at these at these kiosks that they were literally just throwing the money on the floor. Here's a t-shirt, give it tenner, we'll we'll pick it up later. They would the the, the merchandising folks would come to the office on a Monday after the Saturday um, gig or the Sunday Sunday afternoon uh, festival with two hundred thousand uh, pounds in cash. Um, I mean that would that would put the fear of God into most people walking around with imagine walking around with two hundred thousand quid in your in in little in a little coffer. And then hoping that that somehow tallies with all the T-shirts you sold. Uh, and then having the realization like, fuck, uh, there's a thousand T-shirts unaccounted for. Mm. Um, and and it, was, it wasn't untoward, or maybe, maybe it was. I mean, I don't, I don't think people were, um, were uh, uh, thieving magpies or anything, but stuff was just going so quickly that you couldn't account for everything. <laughs> there were people at, at shows um, you have to have the, give complimentary T-shirts to to the venue, to the band, to the band's manager. So there was just stuff being handed around all the time. So you couldn't make it uh, tally. Mm. It was just a crazy business that um, we wanted to have because it, it it provided this unique offering to a band to be able to send pub records and merchandising. But it wasn't a business that we were um, 
yeah. uh, a, a massive fan of. And the bottom line was certainly nowhere near as, as positive as, as it was with records. That that's absolutely a given. Maybe I should be maybe I should be reframing my perception of blue grape in this picture because maybe it's got more of a marketing function than it does a revenue function. Which all obviously rolls up into a revenue function. But yeah, if if it's part of this whole it's part it's even part of this whole licensing thing I've got in my head. It's all about getting the brand and the fingerprint in it someone's everyday life. Um yeah. I'm not gonna do that any better than having the stamp that prints the thing that's going into these territories. Maybe I need to look at it from that perspective. Or maybe I'll speak to Felix Sebastian at some point. I'll, yeah, I'll, that'd be great. I mean, but and from that point of view, it made it made perfect sense. Also, it's a good point. But uh, from from a business point of view, and and all the the problems that it uh, um, you know that that that, that came to the, to the surface, um, and the the uh, yeah the compromised bottom line, it was it was not a not an easy one. I mean, back to this thing of the stocks. You'd order a thousand large, a thousand uh, extra large. 200 small, but then if a completely di- different demographic comes and buys the t-shirts, um, you're, you're left with 800 extra large t-shirts with the name of the of the festival on it. What are you going to do with those? You, you, you're stuck with them. They're good for three weeks and then it's outdated. Precisely, precisely. So that was, you know, that was probably a reason not to get into merchandising. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of promo CDs that go out around OzFest, speaking of festivals and branding and things. A lot of them are called Roadrunner Owns Ozfest, and it's just because there were so many fucking Roadrunner bands on the Ozfest yeah, yeah. in the states. I, t- I can't, knowing what Sharon Osbourne's like in terms of like a shrewd business person, I didn't understand why they'd allow that. Yeah, Roadrunner literally coming in and going, "We'll just do the promo CDs and we'll put our name all over them, and don't you worry about it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's move a little bit into um, this murky territory of the late nineties. Um, where there seems to be some flirtation with gangster rap and some very, very out there genres, which are very off-brand for Roadrunner. Um, and I have to say this, this a lot. When we're trying to deal with this very um, genre and culturally agnostically, and we're trying to talk about Roadrunner as an, as an entity which was a vehicle for disruption, I'm not shitting on Roadrunner for trying gangster rap. Why wouldn't you? Um, but it's interesting how... It seems they tried to penetrate that market. Um, and I mentioned some bodies, which I can't tell whether they're subsidiaries of Roadrunner or they are just like imprints elsewhere, which Roadrunner worked with. This could be, it's a more of a US-based question, I think. But Power Records, Triad Records, uh, Big Beat, um, there's basically a flirtation with that genre. And it seems to be quite tangible. It's not just a licensing arrangement. There seems to be joint ventures in there. Yeah. Can you, can Big you... Beat, yeah, Big Beat doesn't ring a bell, uh, to be honest. The other two do. Um, I think I think if you'd ask Case, because uh, I don't know the answer myself, I don't think we had an A&R guy that was doing um, doing uh, gangster rap. Uh, if you'd ask Case, why'd you get into that? He'd probably say, ah, I just wanted to do rap. Um, I saw I saw an opening, I saw a market, and yeah. someone turns up and they have a good product or a good idea and we did a joint venture with them mm. but there were short-lived joint ventures because i mean we, we talked last time a little bit about the uh the arcade the clash of cultures and this would have i think represented a clash of cultures as well um so power and triad um i think it probably took longer to negotiate the deal than um the the, the joint venture actually lasted because no sooner was the the, the deal inked and and it was almost over yeah uh, 
And I, I couldn't name you one band from either one of those uh, joint ventures. I'm sorry. Uh, it's cool. So, so I don't know. I think it was um, a, a, a flirtation with that, uh, the concept, but the, it, um, the marriage did not ensue. It seems obvious. I mean, I'll give you the, the conclusion of that sort of like diatribe, right? So it yeah. seems obvious that it, it was a, a silly flirtation. It feels obvious. But we got Doc Coyle said this when I had him on the other week. We've got to remember that the music industry is only like, even at that point, under 50 years old in, in any sort of conventional recognizable state. Of course, you try and take advantage of these opportunities. Only now, again, once we live in this sort of like personalities, our brands now, um, it's less of a product life cycle. It's more of a engagement relationship that keeps the money coming in from a revenue perspective that it's easy to come back and go, wow, would you sign a, a bunch of gangster up? But yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting product of its time. And especially with the big beat thing, given that Craig Coleman was the head there and he ended up coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean, Case tried other stuff. It was, it wasn't only about last time we talked about uh, the single with, with Cliff Richard, we had Maloka, which is a pop band, uh, you know, even um, Junkie Excel at the time was, was, was not really uh, uh, the, the, the core genre. Um, it was that kind of like big beat uh, uh, sound that that uh, mimicked, uh, uh, somewhat mimicked uh, uh, prodigy. So we there were a lot of flirtations with other music genres, and this was really in that in that sort of same vein. You know, yeah. try something else. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Um, so we've alluded to the working relationship with uh, Universal. Um, yeah. How did that come to an end? Wally Van Mittendorp gave me a cracking story about how everyone went out for dinner. Um, and Kay said, stood up and said, I've got an announcement. Uh, this afternoon, I bought back Roadrunner Records from Universal. And everyone was like, woo, clunking glasses, monocles falling into champagne. And then he said, for about five seconds, when I turned around and signed it over to Warner. So what stopped? Why the transition? What was the Warner offering? Why did Universal not cut it anymore? Is this now Leo? You know, where are we? Yeah, look, I mean, that's, that's fascinating, actually. Uh, because... We had the the glory years, as uh, uh, as I refer to them. Then, in, with Universal, things were going great. the The relationship was great. Universal had an option to buy the remaining fifty percent of the company. Mm. Um, that option had to be exercised at a certain point in time. I don't know what year that was, but it'd be the year that the first part of the Warner um, was done. You can have that information. Was it two thousand six, seven? Um, I think it was two thousand six where they bought the initial. Yeah, so it was 73.5 was the first amount, correct? They went straight in with the majority, correct? Yeah, so this date, this magic day comes up, um, before which Universal was supposed to exercise their option to buy the remainder of the company. Everybody within Roadrunner that knew this was going to happen had assumed, well, Universal is obviously going to buy the rest of the company because it's going going so well. And uh, we then get this this notification saying Universal will not be exercising its uh right to acquire the rest, uh, the remainder of the company. We're like, what? This is like the year after, um, Christ, what's the Nickelback album? The one that went to like 10 times platinum. Like the biggest. <laughs> it just did not make any sense at all. I mean, I, I, nobody understood it. It was completely out of the blue. It was, wow. it was like, I mean, the odds of that happening, as far as we were concerned, were less than 1%, but it happened. So, mm. and we needed to replace uh, the partner, because when we, I mean, uh, there were massive investment, even to, in, in spite of the profits, right? The profits were going to the to the shareholders, 
um, the company still needed to be financed. Yeah. Um, and Case was looking to, he had a couple of options. He, he, could, he could have um, remained uh, independent again or gone back to independence, or um, you, go, you, you, you replace one major by another. Uh, and enter Lear again. Lear made the step from one major to, to the other. He moves to Warner. And it probably calls up case and goes, okay, so this has happened. I'm moving and let's, uh, uh, let's stay married. Let's do the deal. Uh, we'll redo the deal at Warner and there'll be a, you know, it'll be a bigger uh, share, but the deal has to happen soon. So we had something like a 30 day window to replace Universal with Warner, which is just an, I mean, a shorter period of time. Than What's driving the 30 day period? Is that when it just, the option would lapse? Something like that, yeah. We just right. wanted, we wanted to to be in in sync, so there wasn't it wasn't a, a long period in between when things were a bit you know whatever uh, fluid, um, and I, or maybe it was it, it could also be from our point of view saying okay we'll do the deal with Warner, but <laughs> we're used to these deals taking forever. We'll only do it with Warner if it's concluded within thirty days. I think that's more likely to have happened. Case going yeah, Lear, let's do it, but. I don't want to fuck around for five months. It's got to happen in 30 days. And then Lear uh, was was uh, certainly uh, able to push down British, to his right. people and say, this deal has to happen 30 days. Don't fuck it up. And it did. <laughs> we we run, run around like headless chickens uh, uh, again uh, for 30 days and the, and the deal happened. However, you know, um, more, uh, look, the advantage to, to a deal like that is that Case remained shareholder. So mm. you don't get all these long discussions about uh, guarantees, reps and reps and warranties, and all the, the difficult stuff that you get in an acquisition when it's 100% sale. We were staying on as a shareholder, so mm-hmm. you remain responsible for the business. And Case was staying on as the CEO as well. So the deal was relatively easy to be to be made. Um, yeah, so one gets replaced by the other. It was What's Case's? Where's Case's head at this point? Because he's 65. Is he thinking close this out? Let's start winding down. Case is now 81. He's still not thinking like that. Um, <laughs> Case, will, I wouldn't be surprised if Case does acquisitions in the future. Uh, once the entrepreneur, always the entrepreneur. Um, he doesn't, uh, I don't think he looks at life in terms of uh, age. I mean, he's, and he's not the only one from that point of view. Um, he just, he goes on, he goes to work and he, he wants to do business. So yeah. he certainly wasn't thinking at that point um, anything like, uh, well, let's let's start to think about my pension, pensionable age. Far from it. Um, this just gave him a new new lease on life. He was driven again. You know, he's, um, the adrenaline was was flowing through his veins again. Uh, there's another opportunity to to grow the company with Lear, which was the big advantage to the Warner deal um, having happened. If Lear had not been sort of like the the linking person, I, I wonder whether that Warner deal would have happened. Um, yeah, but and but so it did. And with 73% or 74% of the company at the time, we still remained largely in charge of the company, not from an, a shareholder point of view, but from an operational point of view, which is unique. And again, that's Lear saying to Case, you do it the way you did uh, did before and the way you do best, and you keep your people and we won't touch it. Uh, and you keep control, you keep financial control. Because for anyone that's running a company, you need to have financial control of the company. You need to know what's going on and not for somebody else to be uh, running the books and yeah. telling you uh, how, how, the, uh, how, how the numbers work. Um, you've got to have your own people uh, doing that for you. And that's what, what stayed in place after the, the Warner acquisition of the 74%, which was brilliant. 
So for the next few years until the final acquisition, we stayed largely, yeah, we stayed uh, largely independent. So yeah. one left us alone as well until the remainder was sold. And then things did change. How did that change then? I think 2010 is when the remaining 26 odd percent was acquired. Then the paychecks start coming in without the red logo in it. It's got a different logo. Yeah, the whole the temperature changed. Um, you know, you're you're now subject to the road uh, the Warner uh, policies on employment, policies on this, policies on that. We were having to fill in forms all the time. We were having to do uh, questionnaires um, every every month. You you get a questionnaire from from HR, um, uh, and, and you know you, there'd be questions. We'd laugh at this. Um, there'd be multiple choice questions. Is it okay to carry a firearm to work? Uh, in the in any of the following events, one you feel under threat. B you have a license, and we're, we're looking at this going. The fuck is this stuff? You know, we're now really under the Warner umbrella, having to do uh, un, under all of their policies. Um, and if you didn't complete these forms, you can imagine all these these roadrunner folks going, "Fuck these uh, forms! We're not going to do that." Yeah. Um, <laughs> fuck you! Won't do what you tell me. And, uh, <laughs> You would it would escalate to the head of HR in New York if you hadn't if one of the roadrunner people hadn't completed their the monthly questionnaire. It's fucked up. So the whole temperature is changing, hmm. and um, you know the 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 head of uh, the, the, the CFO is uh, is let go. Ian, Ian Flint is no longer with the company. Um, we're losing uh, financial grip um, of of what's going on. Doug, Doug is one of the first people to go, isn't he? Doug is one of the first people to go uh, in, in, in sort of the same time frame as Ian. And they were, uh, you know, the two bedrocks of the company, the pillars, uh, the sort of financial and, and operational pillars of the company. Mm. So imagine Case now without those those two guys. Um, and there's, there's Warner also now they're 100% owned, like slowly moving in um, on on the, the, the whole roadrunner space and, and in and insisting that certain things happen, I mean, there'd be there'd be uh, there'd be a, a dictate that uh, it had to be a, an overhead cut of ten percent. Didn't matter where it come come comes from, just slash ten percent of the overhead, um, and that became really uh, yeah. Just, For a lean and mean company, that's a very difficult proposition. Totally, yeah, and, yeah. and not much fun um, to to be so called running the company. Um, if that's if that's how it has to be run, so it became a lot less attractive and palpable for anybody uh, uh, left uh, mm. in the company. It didn't take that long. It was one or two years before the the, the big cull started, including yours truly. So why? What was the catalyst then that made them think, "All right, we need to buy this extra twenty six percent"? Because things were going well. What made them think? And this is pure speculation, I guess. What made them think we can do better? What was the, the catalyst to buy the remaining twenty six percent was um, I, I, there might be, might have been some sort of time frame um, related to the the acquisition of the of the final uh, bit the final tranche, um, but also I, I don't know um, you might know this but wasn't it Lear Lear was leaving or going to be leaving at some point um, the the ownership of Warner had had changed. Um, Changed hands that that might have brought on a, a new um, tide of policies within the Warner Group 
about their subsidiary labels like like Roadrunner. Um, September 2012, Cohen resigned from Warren and started his own independent label, 300 Entertainment. So September yeah. 2012, April 2012 was when the, yeah. the axes dropped and what we're yeah. referring to as the Red Wedding. Right, yeah, yeah. And and when did Bronfman sell to uh, uh, the Blavatnich, the, the Russian? That must have been around that time, time as well. What's this, sorry? Bronfman was the, the, the owner of Warner. Um, right. At the time... Uh, Around that time, he sells at some point. There are a lot of changes around that time. Right. Okay. I wasn't. I wasn't aware of this. So this is going to be a another another rabbit hole. Another long. Yeah. Look spend. at that. The the Bron- Bronfman uh, ownership of of Warner's. It's an interesting period because he comes from the. Uh, he's a Seagram man, I believe. Uh, the distillery um, and other businesses and. Um, he then becomes owner of this this, this massive record label entertainment company, um, but he sells at some point. Yes. And the sale, I remember being um, around the time there were a lot of changes coming through for, for, for us guys. Right. And that was also almost in sync with, with Lear uh, leaving um, okay. the, the Warnerfold. So that, that, uh, that might explain some of the bigger changes. Just change of ownership, change of management, change of attitude towards the the indie part of the of the company as it were yeah that's that's interesting i didn't think of that knock on i didn't think of that i never considered the warner remaining acquisition of roadrunner being the result of a knock-on effect over there yeah and i should have done that's interesting that's very interesting do you know i mean do you know what happened um this was after the acquisition of the remaining hundred uh, the remaining 26 percent Almost uh, within days of of that uh, that part of the deal closing, um, we were instructed to close the the international office, so the the office in in Holland, where to let twenty one people go. Um, so it felt like we'd been decapitated. That was sort of like the beating heart of the administration of the company. Yeah, uh, that was when 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 Ian and others um, were let go. The whole finance team was basically let go. There were given a long notice period, but it was the end game for those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when Wally was, was you know, in his final part of his tenure. And, and that whole stronghold in, 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 in Holland, that was the kind of like the, the spider in the web in, in, in terms of the relationship with the, with the operating companies worldwide was just gone, decapitated. Mm-hmm. And and case was left with um, with two or three. I think I think Wally actually stayed for a bit longer. Case and me, but it just well, it was not the same. Yeah, it's just not the same. Yeah, and so everyone's going undergoing the stranglehold for this next this sort yeah. of two year period. Yeah, shit flying in from all different directions, and I can empathise. Um, Case has now lost control of his baby. So this is a very elongated period to be going under this kind of strain. He must have been ready to fly the nest quite early on in that process, right? Yeah, fairly early on, because he'd signed a longer contract than uh, he he actually ended up serving. Um, I think the intention, you know, as as is the case, as is often the case with these takeovers, you you buy the remaining share of the company or 100% or whatever from the get-go, and you retain the executive for three years, four years. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it was probably one of those 
sort of long-term contracts that was 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 entered into at the time, but mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't last. You know, halfway halfway in, both parties knew uh, this is we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to um, uh, yes yeah, sit sit out the the whole term. Yeah, and a lot of that was was case just not enjoying that running the company um, under its new yeah under these new protocols. Yeah, under those new restrictions. So, what was your personal experience of this then? As the clock's counting down to uh, uh, the Marcus departure, uh, well, it was it was yeah, it's going to look a crazy period because at the same time, Case was already starting to look at what he was going to be doing next. Uh, he had the CNR company still, so the Dutch mm-hmm. um, record label and, and, and catalog. Yep. Um, he was uh, looking to invest in in books. Uh, at the same time, he was uh, subject to a non compete with with Warner, so he couldn't. Um, you know, flirt with the idea of starting another record label, um, even if he might have wanted to do that. Um, but his 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 sort of focus switches at that point to a, a media company in Holland that had a book division. Look, and and last time we spoke as well, um, we talked about Casey's love of reading books and um, and that business. Yeah. So while I'm working for Warner in this sort of like uh, sinking road on a ship feeling. Um, I'm also working for Case on the other side of the business, and this is this is an arrangement that um, Warner accepts, uh, right? So like a dual, uh, it's like having a dual role, um, making make billionest while we, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was an understanding, but it wasn't it wasn't a happy balance because my Rodan, my yeah my Warner Rodoner bosses were in America in London, so you'd be getting calls at eleven o'clock at night, um, pretty much every day, and. and uh, while having done a day job for Case, who's, who's like moving his his new investment life forwards towards an, a, a new venture, which I found very exciting. And some of the other guys that had been let go before me um, had already uh, signed new employment contracts with Case uh, under the, the the kind of like the the, the new. Was this Case's plan all all along? Get the butterfly net, catch everyone, drag them into the new world. Not catch everyone, but catch the ones that because uh, you you know you, you, you couldn't finance um, everyone uh, yeah. much as he would love to have have done that. Um, his his focus, primary focus at that point, was to to acquire this book publishing business in in Holland. So for that, he needed some of his key uh, mainly finance and operation operations people in Holland. Hmm. So a handful, I mean, literally three or four uh, people who are still with the company, with Case now, uh, moved over. Uh, yeah. And joined him in uh, in the new venture. Right. Yeah. So it's a, just a weird uh, weird period in which in which you you know what the outcome is going to be. I knew what the outcome was going to be. I was going to get a call at some point from uh, HR in, uh, in uh, Warner HR in London saying, "Well, Marcus, look, uh, uh, time's up. You know, mm. um, let's talk about how we uh, we settle this." So that was you know waiting for the inevitable uh, is is never fun. Um, However, um, at the same time, there was this sort of there was this net to to uh, to land into um, in, in in terms of Case's new venture because he'd already said, look, when that thing ends, come with me in the in, in, in the new uh, new adventure. Wow, what's going to happen? Wow, and now we are ten years hence. <laughs> yeah, that's everything that I wanted to explore. Doesn't the knowledge gap for Doc's work?